Welcome to Philosophy for Theologians. My name is Jared Oliphant. We have an excellent show lined up for you. We're going to be discussing partially the philosophy of David Hume. We have an excellent guest who is uh, becoming an expert in the subject. But uh, why don't I uh, just go around and introduce the panelists that we have before I introduce the guest. And uh, we'll start with uh, Jonathan Brack. Jonathan Brack is the Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. How are you doing, Jonathan? Very good. Former Director of Admissions at Westminster <laughs> Theological Seminary. I did pass the baton to Jonathan, and, and I hear he's doing very well, although I am Regional Coordinator at Westminster Theological <laughs> Seminary down here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm a little out of touch, but I uh, hear good things about what he's doing. And we also have uh, Paul Maxwell. Um, Paul is a student. Paul, what uh, degree are you studying right now? I'm in the MDiv General program. MDiv General. Yes, the best program at Westminster, besides the PhD program, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think all three of us, I started out in MDiv General. Jonathan, that's what you're uh, currently finishing up, right? Yep. That's yeah. right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so those are, the, uh, those are the panelists today, and we're going to be getting into a couple topics, but let me introduce our guest today. I'm really excited about having this guy on. He was actually the first friend uh, that I made at <laughs> Westminster. I remember standing in line for Summer Greek back in the summer of 2002 and uh, just hanging out with some people and we start up a friendship and have been in touch off and on since we graduated, but wanted to introduce Nathan Sasser. And um, Nathan, how are you doing? Uh, doing great. Glad to be here, Jared. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Why don't you explain just a little bit? Uh, you're, you have a couple roles right now. You work at the Pastors College for Sovereign Grace Ministries, and you're also working on your PhD. And that's why we're talking a little bit about David Hume. Um, could you start off just explaining uh, what you do at the Pastors College, maybe how you got into the Pastors College and what you teach and, um, yeah, just what it's like to, to be there and, and teach what you do? Sure. Um, well, the, the way I got into it was, to go way back, was I grew up in a Sovereign Grace Church in North Carolina. And so when I was coming out of Westminster, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do after that. But I managed to get a lunch with Jeff Perswell, who is the dean of the pastor's college here. And I was just going to ask him for advice on what should I do with my life. And uh, he offered me an internship at Sovereign Grace. So that was back in 2005. So I came here as an intern um, for three years until 2008. And then in 2008, I went down to the University of South Carolina and did coursework for a PhD. And then in January of this year, I came back to the pastor's college and um, was able to, to come on staff in a full-time position um, as my official title is the assistant director of academic affairs. Uh, I, I don't actually do anything quite that fancy, but, um, <laughs> but uh, so that, that's how I got here. Um, and what I do is, well, now in my current capacities, I'm teaching some courses. So the Pastors College, just to give you some context, is a one-year, one academic year training program for um, men who are going to serve in Sovereign Grace churches, either planting a church or coming on staff at a Sovereign Grace church. It's small. We have usually around 20 men per year is about all we can accommodate. Some of these guys have been to seminary. Probably most haven't. Um, and so what we do is we give them a crash course, really, in, in theology. So courses that you know might take a semester in, at Westminster, we try to cram them into a week at um, 
at the pastor's college, which is uh, sounds offensively minimal, but actually there's, <laughs> we were able to, we do cram a lot of content into those weeks. So it's mostly, those guys get three and a half days of lecture and then as much reading as we can pile on them reasonably um, in each of those weeks. So I teach uh, Greek, which is the one course that runs throughout the year. And since Jared and I were uh, comrades in Greek, you, you will appreciate how probably how ridiculous it is that I'm actually teaching Greek <laughs> in, in any kind of context like that. But I am. And I'm, what's a privilege to get to do, it helps me to, to learn it myself. Um, so I teach Greek. I, I also get to teach apologetics, which is a joy. Oh, wow. So we're putting the, the Van Til and the Kool-Aid here in Sovereign Grace and, <laughs> and just having them drinking on down. Uh, and I get to teach Doctrine of God. I just started that, which oh, is wow. just overwhelming. Um, I feel very inadequate for that, but it's, it's a privilege to get to do. And then also uh, the Doctrine of Salvation. Uh, oh, soteriology. Wow. And this year, my father and I are actually going to co-teach a course on ethics, which wow. will be brand new to both of us. So we're, we're working on our material for that. So that's roughly in a nutshell. Those are my academic responsibilities. I also have um, responsibility for our library here, such as it is. It's, uh, it's small, but, but strategic. So I'm very proud of it and think we have a pretty decent collection of historical reform theology and biblical studies material. So I do acquisitions for our library. And I also participate in mainly the main uh, event that I do for Sovereign Grace is this worldview camp called The Clash, which we do every two years. And maybe I'll talk more about that later. But that, in a nutshell, those are my, kind of my, my basic duties here. Yeah, that just sounds like an absolute ton uh, of work that, that you have. Um, I was the, able, go ahead. No, it's just it is. It's a lot of work, but it's it's really the funnest work I could possibly imagine. That I get to do all those things, so it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, it was really cool seeing you in action because I was privileged, and Jonathan was there as well uh, to go to the next conference back uh, around Memorial Day of this year. And that was that was pretty much you know a sovereign grace conference and um, you know for those in the know there, there's a lot of, of changes that are happening in the sovereign grace community but um, what I really want to focus on is just you know the, the things that have been going on um, conference wise and you at the pastors college that that aren't you know high interest topics like like all the the controversy that's going on right now right. but really just trying to promote what you guys are doing um, like I said at the next conference. Nathan, you did a great job of explaining all the books that were recommended. I know that was that was a pretty tough task to narrow down recommended books that are, were on worldview that were biblically solid. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you you pared down that list? Um, and also, kind of a follow up. It sounded like the curriculum at the Pastors College is a little bit like what you did at Westminster, and maybe comparing those two and how one informs the other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the book list was just uh, that was a lot of fun to put together. I was basically putting together right, the best books that we could find in the world on each of those given topics. A lot of which revolved around worldview issues and mm-hmm. and and theological issues. And so I was drawing very heavily from our Westminster curriculum um, on a lot of those picks. And of course, um, my boss Jeff Perswell had a big influence on those as well. I wouldn't ever claim to have read all the books that we recommended <laughs> or even all the books that I recommended. But uh, uh, so I was just doing my best to, uh, to sell the media, most substantial theology I could to our people to, uh, to equip them in that way. So, and what was the second part of that question? 
Well, just from what you were talking about before, the classes that you're teaching, I noticed, yes. you know, and I was curious about the curriculum, you know, when, yeah. when someone thinks about a pastor's college where everything is a little bit condensed and you compare yeah. it to a seminary, what's, what are the comparisons like? And just right. from personal experience, I was at a Sovereign Grace Church uh, out in Vancouver in yeah. March, and the guy had been in the pastor's college and, and yeah. raved about it, and the church was thriving and, and really yeah. growing, and so... You know, right. just just to report back to you, the feedback is really positive. But both the curriculum and, and how do you keep up with alumni and how the pastors' college is really, um, you know, helping them out in in their current ministry and in their future ministry. Yes, that's great. So, um, right, well, you know, there are limitations. I think the limitations that we face are probably. I think we feel the most in terms of how much reading we can assign. Uh, we give them, we're pretty heavy on lecture. I mean, with three and a half straight days of lecture, you can cover a lot of the same amount of lectures you might in a, in a um, semester-long seminary course. Mm-hmm. Not as much, obviously, but what we have to do probably is, uh, well, for one thing, our, our textbook is, is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is in many ways sympathetic to a lot of our doctrinal distinctives. It's also very readable, and you can get through that material quicker than, say, um, the comparable sections in Turretin. So, mm-hmm. right. uh, so at least the way that, that I structure my courses, and every instructor is different in the way they do it, um, is I draw, I assign the Grudem reading, and I really try to supplement that by, with drawing together sort of the, the historical reform tradition and insights that, that we would have that we get to to bask in more at Westminster. So I, I read them large tracts of Bavink and mm. um, Oh nice. And in my soteriology class I just basically read them book reviews, a large book review of Richard Gaffin and things like that. Oh. So um <laughs> excellent. So that's the way I, I'm very unoriginal in my lecture material and I <laughs> hope I am anyway. So that, that's the, the approach I take. Of course, uh, I wouldn't want to say it's not like the Pastors College is. It's not Westminster. I mean, I'm just one person who who teaches a few courses here. My boss comes from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and so uh, he has a lot of you know different strengths that he's bringing to bear. I mean, he's many strengths. Uh, and then we also have instructors from uh, who are just pa- or pastors in our churches who have a variety of backgrounds who have made themselves experts in a certain topic. Mm-hmm. We bring in um, guest speakers who are professors from other seminaries a lot. So, so the fl- there's really a wide range of approaches that people take, and um, so that's how we try to work it. We also feel the difference is we don't have as much time to assign uh, like major research projects. So we get mm-hmm. some of those in, but those are some of the constraints that we face. In terms of uh, how we stay in touch with our alumni – um, well, I do think our alumni are very positive about their experience at the pastor's college and, and, you know, they're, they do rave about it. And I, and I don't say that boasting. I think, I mean, I'm just, I'm very grateful for the program here and I think it's excellent. And mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for the way it prepares men, especially for pastoral ministry, which is the focus of what, of what, the way that we structure the pastor's college. It's not, we're not preparing people for PhDs, but they do, we do an excellent job of, I, I think of preparing people for pastoral ministry. These courses are om- almost entirely, except for guest speakers and myself, um, taught by pastors and people with pastoral experience, and it's aimed at equipping pastors for what they do. And so, I think we do a, a good job at that. And 
it's you know our alumni are very very close knit just because all of our sovereign grace churches are very close knit. The classes yeah. are the classes are very small and those guys become like brothers really in the mm-hmm. course of a year very quickly and it becomes a, a really important time in their life. And and you know, we're back together at conferences a lot and we see each other and so it's really it is a large extended family. That's really cool. Well um did you guys have any questions about the pastor's college? I was gonna transition a little bit. Uh, I like that that structure that you said about sort of the camaraderie that you build with the, the different um, the men there as they as they train. Um, I think that's that's a, a great angle. Um, I was going to ask you: uh, do you, do you sometimes uh, I can't imagine because I'm also you know in the Westminster curricula. But um, do you, uh, Kevin? Do you do you feel as if um, sometimes it's like, man, I wish I could you know, just dump all of Van Til or Voss on these guys just an entire semester. But there's some, there's some time that has to be, that has, you have to coddle that, you know, you have to allow that to grow. Um, Do you ever feel that sort of that limitation at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, I think for every course we feel the, you know, the limitations of what we like to give people. Absolutely. So you know, there's certainly limitations. I we would, I think ideally everybody would love to expand the program. I there's mm. just really more practical constraints that that keep us from doing that at least right now. But we'd love to make it a longer program. So yeah, we give them more. yeah. I imagine though that I, what I love about this is it, you begin like you said earlier, you sort of put Van Til in the Kool Aid. But I'm sure you don't, you know, dump uh, Christianity and Bardianism in the raw, you know, day one, right? But right. you give them a sort of sense of you can now, this isn't your, your degree at the pastor's college or your time at the pastor's college. It isn't really static. This is something oh, right. to, to grow from this, these foundations to. Absolutely. To, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, no, we, we, I mean, I think there's, there's, uh, uh, everyone feels the pressure to be lifelong learners. I mean, for that matter, just coming out of seminary, I realized I only knew which books I ought to be reading. I mean, that was yeah. me. But but especially more so, I think, in the in the pastor's college. I think the men have a sense of that. Mm, okay. Mm. Very good. Yeah, Nate, I was talking to a guy the other day who was in a Sovereign Grace church, and he was, he was a prospective student at Westminster, and he was wondering whether he should go to pastor's college or Westminster, so feel free not to answer this question. I can even edit this out if you'd like me to. But uh, uh, what what advice would you give a guy like that? No, no real particular circumstances pushing one way or the other. Just trying to discern his calling and and what path to take. So yeah, what would you say? Yeah, you know that's a question which people ask a lot, and I I don't know that there's a set answer, and and I don't even presume that I've got the wisdom on that the, our approach i think in sovereign grace is we we deeply value the education that someone can get at a seminary and you know that's that's a no-brainer mm. however we don't consider that it's neither necessary nor sufficient for serving in a sovereign grace church mm. and so i think it just depends upon your life circumstances and um where you seem to be called providentially at what point in your life and what uh, you know, family and financial constraints you have, and what kind of local church commitments uh, you've got. Uh, so there, yet yeah, I think it depends on those factors. I mean, all things being equal, which I don't know if they ever are. Yeah, it'd be ideal ideal to have both for mm. us. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
But yeah, I think I, I agree with you on that as, as far as a, a wisdom issue um, and every single, you know, it depends on, on who's asking the question, of course. Um, yeah. But like you said, it's neither necessary or sufficient. There is no passage in First Corinthians that all ministers must go to seminary before they... <laughs> right. That's the they, New Living Translation, <laughs> I, think. I, was, yeah. I think that's a TNIV, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a 2011 exactly. NIV. Yeah. Right. I wish, yeah. it, I wish it was in there. It'd make my job a lot yeah. easier. But, uh, <laughs> True. Yeah, nice proof texting, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, transitioning a little bit to the philosophy side of, of what you're currently doing and what you have done, you mentioned that, that you teach apologetics, and I was just wondering, you're, you're focusing on Hume, so can you describe a little bit about um, just that, that transition of going from in-div work and really getting into you know, some high-concept apologetics and, and some practical apologetics, I'm sure, and then transitioning to real PhD focus on Hume and what that's like academically, how your you know, MDiv experience has helped you inform what you do with your work on Hume. And maybe, I know I'm asking a lot of questions at the same yeah. time, but maybe just kind of describing what part of Hume you're really getting into in, in, yeah. in terms of like a thesis. Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I'd say is that uh, Jared, I, I kept remembering all through school something you said once, and what that was, somebody passed on to you that if you get through an MDiv at Westminster, a, any PhD work you do will be easier, and that really proved true. I mean, cool. Westminster is so rigorous that, like, honestly, uh, the PhD work was a much easier by comparison. Not that it was a Slack program or anything, but um, it, learning Greek and Hebrew at once and taking in the midst of like an 18 hour course load, like you do your first year is just everything is easy by comparison. <laughs> yeah. After that. yeah. So, so that's what I would, I would say, but even more than that, what I noticed is that boy, Westminster just taught me how to read text so closely. Like I didn't really realize how, how much I was improving as a reader, a careful reader mm. until, until I got out. And so this historical approach, um, which I'm taking to Hume, I mean, for one thing, Hume wrote in English. And so everything is uh, – that's much easier to do close, <laughs> close readings of than, uh, than what, we, what we do in seminary. And so, so it, it – and just in those practical kind of scholarly respects, I feel like Westminster really trained me well. Um, and it, it just gave me such a broad perspective in which to place everything that I learned um, uh, historically, theologically, systematically. So, and of course, I mean, Scott Oliphant's classes at, at Westminster are that, you know, just rigorously trained me. I feel like I grew so much just as a, even like a philosophical thinker in like our planting a class and our Van Til classes. Uh, so I owe a great deal to, to Dr. Oliphant in that respect. Awesome. And then just the basic categories that, that Van Til gives you. I mean, I've just got, after Westminster, I just got so many Van Til maxims in my brain that I'm always testing against what I read, and that's really that's that's shaped my my learning process for for a long time and giving me giving me the right questions and fruitful questions to pose to each new philosophy that, that I try to that I'm engaging with. So that's just been extremely definitive. For, for the way I process those things. Yeah, I imagine. And, you know, for the people who are, are less familiar with Van Til, it, part of what I think might be in the background is, of course, the importance of, of Van Til as Van Til. And also, 
just as I'm get you know as I read philosophy and try to keep up with it a little bit, just the holistic nature of what Van Til was doing in yeah. terms of if you're going to claim Scripture to be the authority on everything, you also have to know Scripture. It's not yeah. just knowing Van Til's five gold maxims and you're good to go with any worldview. It's right. um, you know like you teach doctrine of salvation. I'm sure that comes in you know, left and right when you're talking about a, a Christian worldview, a scriptural worldview. Um, yeah. So just just to kind of fill that out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, you mean it, it fill out in terms of uh, the just, holistic nature of Antil? Yeah, I'm just like, you know, I'm just piggybacking on what you said, just trying to um, – yeah, that, that, you know, some people who don't know Van Til fully may see, you know, it's it's the observation that everyone has their presuppositions, which of course wasn't Van Til's, you know, yeah, great contribution. Right. <laughs> so just trying to frame, okay, how does Van Til affect you when you're getting into the nitty-gritty of Hume and trying to deal with this extreme, you know, skepticism and empiricism in those issues? Yeah, well, the things that come to mind quickly for me as I think about Hume is – Van Til's, I mean, as he's always talking about uh, the problem of universals and particulars, and yeah. uh, that's uh, his approach to that. And that's a very live issue for for Hume, which you know I continue to think about. I, I'm not sure how to say that clearly, but but Hume has definite. He's often called classed as a nominalist, and I, I'll just say that the problem of universals and particulars is is a a huge one for Hume and in Hume, not, I don't know about for Hume, but it's, it's part of his, it's part of his skepticism. And, and you guys were talking about Berkeley, Berkeley earlier. And right. of course that's true for Berkeley as well, who Hume is coming out of. And then also another uh, Vantillian motif, which is a big one in Hume is the relationship between necessity and chance. Yeah. So one of Hume's great insights was uh, Hume assumed and this is a widespread assumption, I think, in non-Christian philosophy, that conceivability is our only guide to possibility. Yes. And what he did then, and I think uh, tentatively I'll say that Descartes shared that assumption as well. Hmm. And, uh, but what, De- what Hume's insight was, was that we can conceive of any two events happening without one another. Right, and what that means is that there's no necessary connection between any two events, because yeah. you can con- conceive of them as being separate. Now he says that he he says the assumed metaphysical account of causation is that it's a necessary relationship between two events. He often talks in terms of objects, but I think what he means is events, mm-hmm. and so that's mm-hmm. how he says, "Look, the only." Uh, necessity that obtains between two events is a subjective necessity in your head not an objective necessity out there in the world and that is just huge for his whole philosophy mm-hmm. so yeah I, I i like that as far as uh yeah the a big summary of that can you break that down in terms of uh the the famous like the billiard balls example yeah yeah so our, our billiard balls uh, the idea is uh, imagine two events um, the the first event is the uh, one billiard ball rolling across the table um, until it becomes contiguous with the next billiard ball. The second event is the one that immediately succeeds that first event, and that is the second billiard ball rolls across the table right. in the expected fashion. Mm-hmm. The idea is that those two events you can conceive of one happening without the other. Right. Are you cutting out here. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. 
um, we can conceive of those happening without the other. So I can conceive of the one billiard ball rolling up to the next billiard ball, and yet the second one floating off into space or right. Right. happening or whatever you want. Um, That's almost I, like it's almost like an, it's. I mean, it is an extreme empiricism. You know, the the phrase that happens in in some kind of you know quote unquote lower lower sciences is correlation doesn't always mean causation. Is that like an extreme uh, example of that? No, that, that what that is is. I mean, that that that's the human human insight is yeah. that all you've ever got is correlation. In fact, he wants to say, what could you even mean except? correlation like what can, what are you even talking about when you talk about causation yeah you're, awesome. you're talking about a, a necessary connection between two events which isn't even conceivable for any two events you can always conceive of them disjoined from each other and so it doesn't there's not even an idea in your head that corresponds to the word causation if mm-hmm. by causation you mean objectively necessary connection between events yeah because you can't measure causation you're just assuming it Right. It's not something you ever observe. When you observe mm-hmm. the billiard balls, you don't observe the force or the power or the energy that supposedly you mean when you talk about causation. You only observe succession between events. Right. Not this invisible thing. You can't, you can't even conceive of what that could be. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what does inertia look like? You know, um, yeah, or any of these, any of these terms that um, that carry that same kind of semantic force of you know, force, power, energy, anything in that that word group is it amounts to the same thing for Hume. Mm-hmm. So, what what specifically are you going to be looking at, or, or have you been looking at with your PhD stu- studies? Uh, you know, what what aspect of that are you diving into? What what are you going to come out? Are you going to come out proposing something or? Um, yeah, what, what's your angle and take as you're talking with your professors and, and trying to come up with something um, on Hume? Right. Uh, well, my what I'm interested in exploring is the nature of epistemic normativity in Hume. And here's what I mean. Uh, we apply uh, terms that, eval- give, that, that denote or connote a evaluation of certain kinds of beliefs, right? You might like, so a term like take a term like justification. Mm-hmm. That's a term that often denotes a positive epistemic status. If, if a belief is justified, we say thumbs up to it from the epistemic perspective, right? <laughs> it's a, it's a good one from the epistemic perspective. And so here's the question that arises for Hume. He, th- what he does in the first book of his treatise on human nature, which is his major work uh, or you could – it corresponds to his inquiry concerning human understanding. That's kind of the uh, the dumbed-down version. Not dumbed-down, but it's it's the adapted version. <laughs> the it's, poor man. It's sold, <laughs> it's sold a lot better. Uh, <laughs> that, was, yeah, that was what it was. He adapted it so that it would sell more. Wow. Anyway, yeah. The, what, he, what he tries to do there is he says, look, uh, I want to examine the faculties of the human mind. So in the first book of the treatise, he examines the, the faculties – um, of the faculty of the understanding, like our, our really our cognitive faculties. The second book is about our, the passions, and the third book is about morals. So anyway, in this first book, what he does is he says, how are our beliefs formed? Um, and he looks at the beliefs that are formed by the faculty of reason, and what he basically says there is, it, it, what he argues is that um, 
if you were to only accept um, this is at a rough approximation because part of my project is to is to sharpen this up a lot. But um, if you were to only accept, first of all, we've got reasons to skept, be skeptical of the deliverances of human of the human understanding. Mm. And in fact, if you adhered only to the deliverances of reason, uh, they would be psychologically impossible because you wouldn't you wouldn't hold any beliefs at all. You'd have to withhold all assent. But that's not psychologically possible. So what he what he does is so, so he's a skeptic. In, in other words, he doesn't think that reason is going to justify any of your ordinary beliefs. Um, so what do we do then? Because if if you were thinking that uh, reason is what conferred like a positive epistemic status on your beliefs, that seems to be that we're stuck because we can't hold to those kind of beliefs. So what do we do? And so my interpretation of what he what he does at the end of uh, the first book is basically to say, well, the true skepticism is to not worry about your skepticism and not to try to hold yourself to only believing what reason delivers because that would just be impossible psychologically. If, to be a real skeptic, what you should do is just to hold those kind of beliefs that come naturally to you. Um, and that don't draw you into like superstition. So really, the the beliefs end up having positive epistemic status for Hume are those that are useful and pleasing to yourself and to other people. That's also his account of what constitutes virtue. So really, he ends up um, mm. replacing epistemic normativity or analyzing it in terms of prudential normativity, what's useful to me, and that also is his analysis of ethical normativity. So my, my goal in exploring all that is to explore the connections between those ideas. My, uh, my PhD will be historical and analytical in its focus, but my kind of side concerns for apologetics are a couple. First of all, it's just to – I like Hume because I believe what Van Til said, and that is that um, any – if you start anywhere but with the Christ of Scripture, you land in skepticism. Yeah. And Hume, Hume goes there, and that's what I love about him. Yeah, me just, too. He will just take you all the way there and won't let you go. And <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. Uh, so I consider him my ally in that respect. Nice. Secondly, uh, Hume – I mean, sorry, Van Til is very much concerned with uh, the ethical qualification of our beliefs. And, and that is that – the intellect itself has to be covenantally obedient to the Lord. And so I hope that this exploration of the nature of epistemic normativity, both Hume's take on it and bringing that into conversation with contemporary analysis of, of epistemic normativity, will equip me to develop that line of Van Til's thought, bringing biblical and theological considerations into interaction with uh, epistemological considerations to develop a notion of of um, intellectual obedience. Wow, yeah. And it sounds like there's a parallel, too, with the connection between ethics and epistemology uh, in, in both figures, Hume and Van Til. And so, uh, yes. I mean, Hume sounds a little bit more like pragmatism when you get into the ethical. Is that, is that put too strongly? Well, yeah, I don't know about pragmatism in the classical sense. Right. Uh, those guys are... Uh, yeah, I'm not the William James version. Right, I, I should say pragmatic, not pragmatism. Yeah, yeah. No, pr precisely because he's replacing 
epistemic normativity with prudential normativity. Yeah, what's pragmatic? What what gives you like a happy life? That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Hmm. Nathan, I was wondering if you could you could help us out a little bit. Uh, we've we've done a Hume uh, episode before on Hume on miracles. Yeah, um, and one thing that we we said sort of a, a maxim that we took away for an apologetics issue is usually when you get into the debate on the college campus with a skeptic, you know, Hume is their hero. Um, and what we kind of took away was, but the fact is, is that Hume is just as destructive to any religious ascent as you are to scientific ascent. So the fact that you're using your cell phone is just as ridiculous as in, in, you know, the skeptics mind as, uh, me assenting, uh, that there is a God in, in the universe. And so um, I, we always thought that that was an, an interesting takeaway from Hume. You know, if you have to use Hume, you have to use him holistically. You can't just use him to bolster your anti-religious claims. Yalta has to understand that those claims also equal anti-scientific claims. Right. <laughs> Ab- uh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. He was not tra- prejudiced in his critiques. Yeah. Yeah, so, that, that's now, absolutely now that we took that away as a PhD human scholar, would you would you agree to that? Do you think that's that's proper or? I I I totally agree with that um, in in broad terms. Um, that, and that's what we were just talking about Hume's critique of causation, uh, and, and or of any necessary connections between events in the world. Uh, that I think. That's that's Hume. I'm sorry. That's Van Til's brute facts. Hume explicitly right. leaves you with brute facts, mm. and so he destroys. I do. I think he destroys science, and uh, yeah, his. And so yeah, that I do. I think. I, I well, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I, I think also his 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 argument on miracles. Another interesting feature. I don't know if you guys are interested in this or not. It's just that. Uh, He's, his argument is that you can't ever believe testimony to miracles, and I just think of that as Calvinists, we don't rely upon the miracle criterion to mm. um, as as presuppositionalists. We don't rely on the miracle criterion to validate revelation. Yeah, exactly. Really, that that argues against an evidentialist assumption, which we should never have taken over from Thomas. Right. I like that. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was fun. when when Danny Schrock was on. He had a paper on Hume. He was actually it was interesting. You could tell Danny is a Westminster student because he 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 compared and contrasted Hume's claims on miracles with Ritterboss's biblical theological view of miracles in their proper context. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. like, in what classroom will you hear Hume and Ritterboss side by side on any issue? <laughs> it's uh, obvious. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's like word association. Hume, Ritterboss. Yeah, but I was wondering uh, a question. I wanted actually to, you to help us with is as far as Hume's view of history, and that's where yeah. it gets it's at the uh, deep structures with Ritterboss's view of history of an old you know unfolding revelation and yeah. and a special and general terms and and the brute fact uh, uh, way Hume talks about the world. Um, I was right. wondering if you could help us with a little bit of how does Hume view just history, uh, qua history, you could ask that in, in that sort of way, uh, which, le- you know, in, in reference to individuals like Hegel and later on, you know, Heidegger. Yeah, okay, I can't speak to Hegel or Heidegger. Um, okay, but, right. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, Angel's Fear to Tread. I can't rush it. But, um, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, in terms of Hume, uh, like I said, history is for him brute facts. And so if you were relying upon uh, reason alone to try to make inferences about events, you'd be faced with the problem of induction. And you wouldn't have any basis for making any inferences about history. So the reason that we do make history, uh, we do make inferences which allow us to investigate history is not because we have good arguments for inductive inferences, but because it's a natural mental process to assume that the future will be like the present or the past will be like the present or in general that the, that the unobserved will be like the observed. That's, mm. a, that's a natural form of inference for Hume, which has a positive epistemic status, but not because it's undergirded by any good argument. Mm. So uh, the big difference is that I, I think, as I reflected, for, for Calvinists and for Van Til, there is a necessity which joins events in the world. But it's, it's what the scholastics call a hypothetical necessity. That is, on the hypothesis that God decreed these events to be thusly conjoined, they must of necessity follow in that fashion, mm. right? And right? It's not, but it's not an absolute necessity, as if God could not have done otherwise. Yeah, yeah, He's not constrained by by the patterns, right? Pre- precisely, and so yeah. I think that's got to be the starting point for um, any Christian thinking about history. Is just that hypothetical necessity is just what we mean by providence. Everything is. Just what God decrees it happens, just as God decrees it to, and it necessarily happens um, up on the hypothesis of the decree. It necessarily happens that way, but it doesn't necessarily happen that way apart from the decree. There's no grounds for inferring anything about what events follow any other events apart from God's decree. They would just be brute facts. But right. because, but because, as Van Til says. Hume starts with these two options of the only kinds of modality he knows about, or that most non-Christian philosophy knows about, is absolute necessity, which constrains even God, mm. or, or none at all, which amounts to brute facts. He doesn't have those resources available for making historical inferences. So Hume cares about history. I mean, he, his big moneymaker was his six-volume History of England right. that he wrote. But... Um, and so obviously he makes historical inferences, but he acknowledges that he doesn't have – strictly speaking, he doesn't have any good grounds for for knowing anything about history. And that strictly speaking, there's no necessity of any sort which, which conjoins two events. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Now, in getting specific, let's take like the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. Um, right. How – given what we've just said, how are we to think of this uh, – you know, it's, it's obviously – yeah, I mean, this is all speculation, but, you know, granted that, that it is speculation, it's, you know, possibly changing the, the chemicals, um, you know, the, the quote-unquote scientific laws that are involved with, change, with changing water into wine. Um, what does this do to our concept of miracle? I mean, are, are miracles, uh, of course, they're irregular events, and, you know, and of course, in Scripture, they all have meaning, and, and they're not just cool magic tricks. Right. But um, how is this either fleshed out or broaden your understanding of miracle given what we know about Hume's observations on science that we can actually take, um, you know, his borrowed capital, and also just your biblical theological framework for what miracles are. Right. So I think uh, that's good, good questions. <coughs> uh, uh, 
just to talk out loud for a minute and I'll see where this goes. I, I think that that generally speaking, the secular world in the secular world, laws of nature are supposed to do the work that providence does in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, in other words, miracles are are such because they're exceptions to quote-unquote laws of nature, which are supposed to occupy this strange modal position between logical necessity and mere chance. Right, yeah. Um, so, which I don't obviously think there's going to be a, a coherent account of, much less a reason to believe that they exist. Anyway, uh, so the uh, the Christian view, though, is that, is that everything happens because of providence. And I think that's what that means is that, yeah, the ordering principle is God's plan, not these, like, naked regularities. Mm. That's yeah, the ordering right. principle in events. And so I think it's the genius of what the Dutch guys taught us when, when they were talking about the organic unfolding of history. And, and that is that organic metaphor captures the fact that there is genuine pattern and there's genuine plan unfolding through history, which is not reducible to the repetition of regularities or the instantiation of um, these abstract counterfactuals. Yeah, it's It's, so far removed from that deist, uh, you know, clockmaker. Precisely, precisely. That's exactly. It's it's not that at all. And so so miracles fit into that plan, uh, and in that sense are are not chance events. They're not random. They're not brute facts. They mm. fit into the divine plan, even though they are ir- totally irregular in the sense of we've never observed anything like that before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, almost like, as if the just assenting to miracles is um, is basically is radically against the uniformitarian um Argument, you know, the law of uniform, you know, uniformitarianism. Or, um, yeah, you can't. You have to presuppose. I think this is absolutely clear. The so-called scientific method, I, I think, for to me, it's absolutely clear. It has to presuppose at the outset that there cannot be miracles, because if they admitted the possibility of irregularities at all, you'd you'd be stuck in a total dilemma. You couldn't. You, the scientific method couldn't get off the ground. So, like uniform uniformity. Is the pre the precondition for a secular philosophy of science any kind of viable method, not a conclusion it reaches? Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I know we're we're running somewhat out of time here, but wanted to get a question just related to that. How is it? How has it been doing this research and, and studying deeply on these things uh, in your PhD work at a secular university when you have all these theological considerations to keep in mind? How are you? juggling the internal and external critique given just your theological background and, and Christian worldview. Yeah, well, um, for one thing, I'd like to say that I mean, my colleagues have been at, at school have been wonderful to work with, I mean, who have a range of different worldviews, and I, I've just been a very collegial atmosphere, and so for that I'm very grateful, and there, cool. I've had lots of great discussions about lots of things. So in terms of, like, mentally the way I work that, I mean, for myself, uh, the internal critique of a non-Christian worldview is what I'm doing in my classwork. And that is I'm just trying to drive everything towards its logical conclusions, which I think are skeptical. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and then the external critique of like, okay, how does a Christian worldview answer this? That's fortunately, I, I feel very grateful that Westminster really equipped me to, to address those questions well. I don't know what where I'd be without having 
had three years to think about those things at Westminster. But again, I, I Van Til makes more and more sense to me and helps me see how our Christian theology, things like providence, things like either the scholastic discussions of hypothetical necessity, those mm-hmm. have been immensely helpful to me in, in finding the Christian answers to the problems that are raised by, by philosophers. Nice. Yeah, Nathan, I have one more question um, yeah. for you If uh, on the subject of, of Hume. It's basically, um, uh, I know Hume was fond of Berkeley. I mean, yeah. Bar- or Berkeley, however you want to say it. Um, yeah, yeah. In the sense, I, it's Berkeley, but I mess it up to you all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> in the sense that um, he was, you know, uh, real consistent to be is to be perceived. But what's interesting always is, um, and maybe you can put this together for us, is Berkeley had this view of uh, God's existence has to be uh, you know, presupposed for existence to take place in the sense that if God's not perceiving the world, right, then, you know, there is no, there's, there is no perception of all things around us. Um, and it's sort of as human, as soon as humans die, then there is no existence. And so, uh, because of that, you know, to be is to be perceived, uh, maxim. Now, how does Hume kind of get rid of you know, continue the, this this real empirical worldview, but get rid of God in light of what um, of him being actually uh, ha- having a charitable eye towards Barclay. Yeah, you know, here's an honest confession, and that is in my empiricism class, we stopped reading Barclay when he started talking about God. So uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in a great place to talk about that. In general, I think Hume just thinks he's being one step more consistent. Um, than Barclay it, it, with the application of that, the same general principles. Yeah, the reason I ask is because what you said about, uh, if I can remember correctly, it's almost Hume is saying to Barclay, like, well, you're you're uh, you're kind of putting uh, God in as a puzzle piece yeah. to to allow for existence in general to take place because you don't yeah. want existence to exist because the human mind is perceiving things. Uh, although, if you're consistent with your maxim to be is to be perceived, is the case. And what Hume does is what, as far as um, uh, I believe you, you started calling it uh, epistemological normativity, right? Yeah. And yeah. how he changed it. It seems as if he puts it. Um, we we talked, you know, not not in a strict pragmatic way, but in um, uh, but sort of in a pragmatic way. I, I can't remember the word you used, uh, uh, but in the person, right? He puts it yeah. as if what's what's it's what's happening is good to you, right? Um, is that is that correct? Yeah, we've got, I think there's a couple different threads there. I, I would separate out the the question of epistemic normativity from. I don't know that that's the most direct difference between Barclay and Hume. I think that might be a, a tangent. I think the difference it's more along the lines of. Um, I think Bark. I think I suspect that Hume just thinks Barclay is. It's gratuitous for Barclay to assume that there is a God out there who kind of gives this realist dimension right. to 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 ideas. Whereas Hume is a lot more like solipsist mm-hmm. and skeptical, and just like there's no grounds for that artificial assumption, which means you're just left with. I, I'm not doing a good job here. I feel like I'm out of my depth a bit, but um. No, that's uh, yeah. That sounds right. Um, but yeah, the question I was asking is when Hume he takes that uh, he he what he does is um, 
he begins to locate uh, what uh, ethics and such in, in, in a sort of in a pragmatic way are the reasons like why you can be a skeptic in the world, right? And yeah. w- that route he takes is sort of a one that locate the meaning is somehow located in the person himself, right? Yeah, it's what's for him ethical ethical normativity amounts to uh, what gives me good feelings. Wow. Okay. Yeah. See, I he's think a, he's an ethical subjectivist, right? Can, you so can hang your hat says, on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, well, not just good. I mean, he thinks that like that. He he asks what qualities, um, what do we approve of as humans? And it turns out that all they can be is things that um, are pleasing to ourselves or others. Those are the sorts of things that that please us. And so he's not a mere egotist because he right. thinks people are pleased by pleasing others too but anyway yeah i think i found that fascinating because it's it's sort of um it's just the on in an articulate way it's a move that is directly in line with what the apostle paul says will happen you know exchange the glory mm-hmm. for you know uh, the immortal right and yeah. and, and Exchange it for the, the for what is mortal. You'll put what de- is deserving of the glory of God into man, right? Yeah, and, that's uh, right. Yeah. I think it's just it's, worship exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no, if um, Jonathan, if that's what you're going for, is saying like Hume makes you know the human mind the standard of reality. That's ab- that's crystal clear in all all features of. Hume's philosophy is that what you're driving at? Yeah, yeah, and I was, I was, I was just wanting to ask you in sort of when the historical backdrop of of Barclay, it's like, yeah, it seems that he's like, well, yeah, Barclay, you just kind of fit God in as a puzzle piece, but yeah. I, from what I'm hearing you say, it's like, well, submitting just the human is almost just as that is just as a, much as a puzzle piece as Barclay's puzzle piece, right? It's sort of uh, to be consistent. Um, I don't know. That's what I was kind of getting at. You could be, you could be right there. Uh, those are, I think, those are things I need to think more carefully about. But I, it sounds plausible what you're saying. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, pro- I, I probably need to think more carefully about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll go and, and think more carefully about it too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any uh, loose ends uh, that we need to tie up before we let Nathan take off? Uh, one other question, uh, just a general philosophy question, since this is philosophy for theologians. You know, it's the famous yeah. quote is uh, Kant says Hume w- woke him up from his dogmatic slumbers. And I always think yeah. as, a, as sort of I, I'm not I'm not a skeptic, but I am a philosophical skeptic in the sense mm-hmm. of like, yeah, right. I don't think, you know, and I want to pox every single house like Van Til did as far as the, uh, <laughs> right. philosophy goes. But um, right. with that, I always Amen. think to myself, um no, he didn't wake you up from your dogmatic slumber. But mm-hmm. um, in the sense of Kant, and, and maybe you could maybe speak just for a few minutes to this, but Kant really didn't escape the the skeptical nature of Hume. Um, or he, he it, it was, I always thought that as far as uh, Kant's response to Hume. Would you agree with that as far as, you know, um, the next sort of, the next major key philosopher Right is Kant after Hume, yeah. Right? And so, yeah. Uh, would you agree with that, or would you? Would you, as far as, as you know, his, Hume's connection to Kant? I do. I do. Well, there's the, your connection is obviously right um, from Hume to Kant, and I definitely agree with you that Kant didn't escape 
um, Hume's skeptical dilemma. But again, I, Kant is someone who I'm really afraid to comment on in detail, uh, the details of what he's saying. So in broad strokes, I say yes, amen. But I need to do some more work on Kant before I say anything in detail. Okay, okay, cool. See, what I always thought was, and maybe um, maybe you can speak a little to this, was, uh, and, um, or I know, Jared, I know you can, but um, uh, you know, Hume has sort of famously laid down the analytic synthetic divide uh, that kind of yeah, right. parallels the a priori a posteriori world, and yeah. then um, and you get a sort of you know a, a commixture of the two with with Kant, right? You have that that's, right. that synthetic mixture there, um, and then right. years later uh, you have with the logical positivist somebody like Quine who even just says no the there is no distinction, there is no two right. dogmas of empiricism, right? Right, um, and so. Uh, I was wondering if you'd say, like, see, that's a that's something that happened, like, from Quine, right, who, who basically, yeah. he says no to Hume, but I, I would almost want to say, well, still, we still kind of think in human categories anyway. Everybody argues, a, you know, a priori, a posteriori. It's almost, it might be better to say, Kant, and nobody's escaped him, you know, from the beginning. And so... Um, but I don't know if you wanted to, if that if that makes sense as far as what I was going in the, in the first question. Well, I think those are all really interesting connections from Hume to Kant to Quine. Uh, I, the the interesting thing that you you came you said there was that everybody thinks in terms of analytic, synthetic, and um, a priori, a posteriori categories, and they are intuitively appealing. I will just say in passing that Van Til decidedly doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. He rejects those distinctions and says. He does not. He doesn't ultimately distinguish between inductive and deductive reasoning, and to me, that's a fascinating thing about Van Til, um, and and that is that that he's got this holist bent to him, like Quine. Mm-hmm. But he, for that, for him, that's coming out of two influences. One is the British Neo Hegelians who he studied. Yeah, um, yeah. And the second is really though. He's thinking in terms of the providence of God and in terms of hypothetical necessity, which doesn't fall neatly into either absolute necessity, such that you could deduce the future from the from the present, or brute facts, such that mm. you can't deduce anything. And wow. so, th- those are those are interesting things which I want to explore in Van Til. Well, that's really fascinating. It's almost as if uh, just to adopt the a priori a posteriori schema. Is yeah. Van Til's going to say no? You know, yep. um, that's, that's right. That's that's so fascinating. You know, it um, is, and it's almost like just trying for Kant to try to to do this third way of a commingling yeah. of the two is um, doesn't matter. It's it's wrong from the beginning. You know, and it's interesting that we'll have we'll see a lot of evidentialists, right? Uh, uh, talk yeah. uh, in in these sort of terms where their philosophy is laden with the inductive, the deductive, the, the op, you know, a posteriori, the a priori. And so it's like, yeah. and Van Til just cuts, cuts so deep right there that it's, it's like, it's no, you, you got to get it out of a holistic worldview. I love that. So that was really it's helpful. True. Oh, good. Thanks. Well, uh, thanks for being with us, Nathan. Uh, I know we got to let you go, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to mention just a couple things that are coming up either in the Sovereign Grace world or, uh, or, or whatever is, is on your schedule and radar. 
Yeah, well, we've got uh, a few conferences coming up in Sovereign Grace. On August 10th through 13th, we've got our Worship God Conference here in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, and Brian Chapel will be with us, uh, and Bob Coughlin, who's, who's from Sovereign Grace. Uh, in November 8th through 10th, we have our Pastors Conference, and we'll be privileged to have our guest speaker, as Sinclair Ferguson. Oh, cool. So we can't wait for him to be with us, and, and as well as our own Dave Harvey and, and some of our other men. Uh, and then... We're also looking forward to participating in Together for the Gospel, which will be in April 10th yeah. through 12th in a big new venue in, in Louisville still, I believe. So That's right. those are all things that we're, we're excited about and invite you all to, to come out to. Very cool. Uh, well, and wanted to mention, if people have questions about either the upcoming conferences or the Pastors College, I think they can go to SovereignGraceMinistries.org. That's probably the best That's place right. for them to get info, right? Yep, that's it. And as always, you can find us on reformedforum.org, and you can find Jonathan's face at wts.edu. If you click on Becoming a Student, his mug's there. It's just, uh, a, big, it's just a big picture of my face. That's all. It <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's with a link to like the application or something. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you can also find Paul. Paul uh, tweets every now and then. What's your handle, Paul? Uh, it's just Paul C. Maxwell. Paul C. Maxwell. Mm-hmm. And I also mentioned we're we're gonna be doing some things with Google Plus too and, and trying to I know that's just getting off the ground, but I've been exploring that a little bit. Uh, so you can look for me on there and Camden's on there and Reform Forum's on there. So they're gonna be posting some news as well. Um, but again, reformforum.org. And um, Nathan, thanks a lot for joining us and we'll oh, see you next time. Me. Yeah, we'll see you guys next time on Philosophy for Theologians. <laughs>